0: So uh, if you want to grab a church Bible, we are on page 5, looking at Genesis 3, starting at verse 14 and going through to verse 24. So that's page 5, chapter 3, starting at verse 14. So the Lord God said to the snake, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labour, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, He placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life.
1: Thank you very much, Sarah, for, for reading for us. Um, we're going to have um, a time uh, for questions, comments uh, at the end today. I think we've been talking about that the last few weeks. So as we go through tonight, um, you might want to be logging some things and thinking, yeah, I'd quite like to, to visit that. You may, um, uh, there may be things that, that have been said over the last few weeks uh, that uh, you want to re- return to Uh, or things that come up from tonight. So we'll we'll make a few minutes, um, see if uh, there's anything anyone wants to pick up on. Um, uh, If you're you're a fan of the far side, then you may know their um, most excellent and psychologically insightful assessment of uh, the four basic personality types uh, that exist in the world. Uh, Here they are. Uh, First, uh, the cheerful optimist. The glass is half full. Uh, Second, uh, the more miserable pessimist, uh, the glass is half empty. Third, the anxious neurotic, half full, no, wait, half empty, no, half, what was the question? Uh, And then finally, the angry complainer, hey, I ordered a cheeseburger. Now, um, I guess that each of those four would view the world in a slightly different way, wouldn't they? Uh, The the optimist would see all the upsides, see all the positive things. The pessimist would tend to notice um, the negatives, uh, a world full of difficulty. Uh, I guess the anxious types gaze at the world and are aware of threat, danger, difficulty with decisions. Uh, And I suppose the angry complainer gazes out on the world and sees it populated by idiots who are incapable of delivering a cheeseburger uh, when it's required. But th- do you see that whatever, whatever view we had of the world, whatever way in which we make sense of the world, that's what a world view is, it, it, it needs to have explanatory power. but By which I mean it, it just needs to be able to make sense of what we see out there. And one of the striking things that we do see out there is contrast, isn't it? We live in a world that the natural world is full of delights, of astonishing beauty, good, lovely things. But they exist side by side in our natural world with things that are ugly and dangerous and threatening. And it's not just the natural world that that has those striking contrasts. No, no, we too, the human race, is indwelt by the most astonishing contrasts. We know that people are capable of the most stunning acts of kindness, generosity, self-sacrifice and love but at the same time that human beings are capable of the most awful atrocities, appalling brutality and murder and rage. And it's not as though the world divides into two camps um, and we could, could sort of venture through each nation and, and ask all the nasty people to go over to that side and all the nice people to go over to that side and, and happily live with the nice people. No, no, no. The dividing line as somebody has famously said, drive straight down the middle of every human heart. We know those two contrasting features within ourselves, that we are capable of great acts of kindness and horrible acts of unkindness. I can't remember when, but um, someone perhaps will remember it if you were at it. Um, it was a wedding not that long ago, I think, um, when the preacher addressing the newly married couple said, it's striking to think that right now you are sat alongside your life partner, your soulmate, and statistically speaking, the person most likely to murder you. It's a slightly risky thing to say, isn't it, on a wedding day? You know, it's sort of a bit of a dampener on the mood. Did you say it? It was you. <laughs> Pretty risky thing for John to have said. But uh, Whose wedding was it? Uh, okay, it uh, was it? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, a, it's a striking idea, though, isn't it? Uh, and captures that sort of, you know, the beauty, the intimacy of relationship and yet the awfulness of a relationship gone wrong. So does your view of the world explain these contrasts? Does it make sense of them? The foundational chapters of Genesis, uh, chapters 1, 2, 3 particularly, that function a bit like a seedbed, out of them grow an understanding of the way that the world works. Uh, in a sense that the seeds of every single sort of essential Christian doctrine it can be found here in these chapters, at least in embryonic form. So they are the place to go to, uh, to find a Christian view of our world. Uh, three headings then, uh, as we attempt to build on the view of uh, our understanding of the world that we've been establishing uh, over the last few weeks. Um, first, a uh, uh, the nature of the rebellion, and then the shape of the curse, and then the promise uh, of hope. Uh, nature of the rebellion. We've been thinking about this uh, last week particularly. Um, uh, chapters 2 and 3 tell us that the, the problem that sits behind every other problem is a dislocation in our relationship with God. So that by, by taking the, the fruit... Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not just some arbitrary rule that um, God's made that, that they breach, like some sort of tripwire that God has very meanly placed in the garden. Um, and you know, because they trip over it, everything is ruined. No, no, no. It's representative, it's symbolic of an assault on the very throne room of God Himself. It's, it's the aspiration to replace God, to cast him to one side uh, and usurp him as the arbiter of good and evil. Um, you see that uh, the serpent said, take this and your eyes will be open, chapter 3, verse 5, and you will be like God. And God confirms that it is so in our passage, uh, verse 22, that the man has now become like one of us knowing good and evil and for that reason mustn't be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and live forever now it is a puzzle isn't it the tree of the of the knowledge of good and evil you know particularly in a city like cambridge you know we're all into education aren't we i mean what could be bad about getting a little bit more knowledge isn't that aren't we all for that So how can it be a bad thing that taking this fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is so catastrophic? Um, Well, I think we thought about it one way last week. Let me come at it from a slightly different angle this week. Um, I think one of the ways of understanding this is that there is a certain knowledge of evil that can only be possessed by God without it tarnishing and corrupting. You know, God alone can know this knowledge of good and evil, can can be in possession of it without being corrupted by it. In other words, God can know evil, God can even use evil and achieve his good ends. You and I can't do that. You no, know, because our knowledge of evil is from the inside. We know evil as participants. And when we try to use evil for good ends, we are corrupted by our use of evil. God alone is capable of something different to that. And so when Adam and Eve take this fruit, innocence ends. They are ruined uh, and every person after them is ruined with them. And the ruin is complete Uh, The ruin touches all of them. Um, Let let me try try and use a couple of illustrations to to try and capture that. Um, You'll know that if you you had a big sort of jug of water uh, and you were to drop into it, uh, you know, a couple of drops of food dye, well, the whole jug of water would be red. There wouldn't be any part of the water which isn't now Red. Now, it isn't as red as it could be, but it is thoroughly red. And the, the doctrine that the theologians use is a, to, to describe this is the doctrine of total depravity, which is not to say that we are now as bad as we possibly could be, just as the jug is not as red as it possibly could be, but that there is no part of it that is not touched by sin, tainted by sin. No part of us that is, not, that is unaffected by the impact of sin in us. That's what the, this idea of total depravity means. But uh, the trouble with that illustration is it's sort of, uh, you know, who cares if you've got some water that's now got a bit of red food dye in. So, so, so run with another illustration. Um, imagine, um, imagine one of these sort of ancient posh clocks um, and uh, inside it all of those cogs That are fitting together like that. Now, you can see that when it's working, it's beautiful. Works very wonderfully. But but just allow one of those cogs to fall out of place. It doesn't even need to be the biggest cog or the cog at the center, but just any cog will do. Take it out and allow it to sort of drop into the middle of the workings, and the clock is ruined. The whole clock now is undone, affected. Will no longer function as it should. Because it is all interdependent. Well, That's the picture. In in this moment of taking the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, everything is undone by it. Everything is corrupted and damaged. The whole thing is out of gear. All the, the mess that we see in our world... Uh, springs. We don't work properly, nothing works properly because of these events in the garden. So first, the nature of the rebellion. Uh, Second, look at the shape of the curse. Um, Important to notice that as God speaks words of curse or judgment, Um, He he does it in a particular order. Uh, He he comes first to Satan, then to the woman, and then finally to the man. And notice that that reverses the order of the interrogation, which began with Adam, then moved to Eve, and then finally arrives at the serpent. There's no accident in the way that the writer has constructed this, uh, the way in which uh, these uh, orderings of questioning and cursing took place. Because it's highlighting for us the proper kind of structure of creation. You remember that Adam and Eve were, were told to, to, to take charge of the garden. You know, to, to, to tend it, to keep it. To, to be God's caretakers over it. Uh, so they, as it were, to, to, to rule over the created order. But you see what's happened? It's flipped around the other way. Because now the, the creation in the form of the serpent Uh, is telling Adam and Eve what to do, instead of Adam and Eve being in control of the creation as God intended. And as a result, uh, curses come. Uh, Let's pick up those curses and just take a look at them briefly. Uh, See the first one um, in verse 14, the curse upon the serpent. Cursed are you, above all livestock and all wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He'll crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, as I said, this isn't an Aesop's fable. This is not um, in order to tell us how the serpent lost its legs. Um, No, something more significant going on here. Um, And it is as if the... Uh, the movement, the environment of the snake in the dirt um, is now appropriate to the snake's fate, belongs in the dirt, uh, and will finally uh, uh, be, uh, be cut off in the dirt. Uh, but also, from this day on, there'll, there'll be this constant sort of battle between the offspring of Eve, uh, between human beings, uh, and the serpent. The human race constantly at war with evil, battling uh, with evil outside and evil inside, never at peace, never free from those assaults. Uh, and then the woman is cursed. Um, and here, uh, as I read um, the curse upon the woman, uh, notice how good things are being marred and damaged and tainted. And verse 16. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Uh, r- remember that God had established them um, to, and given them the instruction that they were to to, to multiply, to, to, to fill the earth. That was part of his good plan. But you see that the, the, the bringing forth of children, um, this good thing, which was part of God's good purpose for them, is now marred by, by the agonies of childbirth. Childbirth that once was utterly good is now painful and perilous. It's been tainted a good thing ruined, a precious gift marred. Uh, And we get the same idea in the next phrase. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. There's there's a couple of ways of understanding uh, the desire idea here. The the obvious one um, is that of personal desire. Eve will desire a man. Uh, She'll long for a partner. But uh, there's the possibility of, of another meaning Uh, because desire could be used here in the same way that it's being used over in chapter uh, 4, verse 7. If you flick over the page and and spot that, you'll see that there, uh, God is speaking to Cain and warning him. uh, If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So it could be that the... the language of desire is being used in, in that kind of way, of just as sin wants to sort of have Cain, uh, control Cain, um, and uh, Cain needs to resist it. Well, in a similar way, it could be your desire will be for your husband, could convey that idea of woman not so much longing to possess a man, but woman longing to control a man, to, to, to have him. In which case, these verses would be unfolding for us the seedbed of the battle of the sexes, the clash, the battle for for control and power. In place of a harmonious relationship, naked, no shame, content together, Adam and Eve gloriously united in the end of chapter 2. Now Adam and Eve locked into something uh, much more ugly, and harsh, and unkind. What's the significance of this? Well, really significant. Um, It it means that um, the the Bible's teaching on male headship, uh, which is clear for us in the New Testament, uh, and is based on these passages in Genesis two. The point is that that has been marred and damaged. But it doesn't mean that it's wrong. Male headship is is no more wrong than childbirth is wrong. It's a good thing, but it has been tarnished and damaged by the fall. Uh, And what that means, particularly, is that I made to myself a, a promise years ago Um, that I would never speak of the Bible's teaching on male headship without simultaneously speaking about the awfulness of male violence towards women and domestic abuse. That I need to do those two things side by side. And I need to do it because of Genesis chapter 3. Because what was good and lovely and part of an excellent way of men and women relating together has because of Genesis 3 became ugly and damaged and awfully terribly uh, very often in, within church circles it is the principle of male headship that men have used to justify uh, their abuse of their wives uh, and so we need to, to not imagine that in church we're going to be free of that but be alert to the danger Uh, and uh, be ready uh, to step in and help and support uh, in situations uh, where that might be happening. We need to urge men to love their wives. And we need to be a church uh, that is uh, ready uh, to see and intervene uh, when that love has turned to something ugly instead. So, curse upon the serpent... Uh, curse upon Eve, finally curse upon Adam. And again, the same idea. Something good is getting tarnished. In this case, it is the the, the good work that Adam had to do. Remember, he was to to, to tend the garden and to keep it, um, and uh, it was going to bring forth good fruit for him. Uh, But now, even though that work will still be possible, it's going to be full of toil and struggle. Same idea. Good thing, now ruined. The dirty works, sorry, the dirt that he works, not the dirty works, the dirt that he works becomes the dirt that he will eventually be buried under, the dirt to which he will finally return. Did you see the picture? A world that was once beautiful, splendid, lovely, uh, has been shattered uh, like some sort of glass. Painting, I don't know, um, that, that has now been shattered into lots of tiny pieces. And in each piece, you, you can catch a sort of little bit of a glimmer of the excellence of what was, but you can't help feeling and noticing and seeing that it's all less than it should be. The, the whole picture has been shattered. So, is there any hope? Well, I'll come to a final heading. uh, The promise uh, of hope. Which is a funny kind of heading, actually, given the way that the chapter ends. Uh, I mean, um, uh, look at the way the chapter ends. It's not, it didn't sound very hopeful, does it? Um, uh, Verse um, 22. The Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Not an enormous amount of hope tucked into those verses, I think you'd agree. It sounds desperate. Because the relationship with God is is now ruptured, And God is the source of life. So now there is no possibility of taking from the tree of life and living forever. Relationship with God is gone. Life itself is gone. Death is now the guaranteed outcome. And the flaming sword flashes to and fro. You can't get back to life without dying, do you see? You try and, try and have that life, and you die. The sword will take you. And yet there are glimmers of hope, aren't there? Catch the first one in verse 21, where we read that, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. Does God cover them to remind them that they are now unacceptable to him? Perhaps. Or is there a kindness here that God provides the first covering because God knows that's what they now need? And is there a hint within it of the promise of better coverings yet to come? And do you think it feels significant? that in order to provide these coverings the Bible mentions or implies the very first death because the skins have got to come from somewhere and and death is the issue isn't it with the flashing sword no way through But, but what if somebody could die to provide a way through. Well, that brings us to the much clearer anticipation set out for us uh, in verse 15, because I, I skipped over at that part of the word to Eve. For as well as saying that enmity will exist between the serpent, sorry, that word to the serpent, as well as saying that there will be enmity between the serpent and the woman and between her offspring uh, between uh, her offspring uh, and the serpents we also read he will crush your head and you will strike his heel Uh, imagine a family uh, gathered round a campfire and imagine suddenly into the midst of the gathering comes a rattlesnake uh, all hissing Uh, and uh, ready uh, to strike Uh, and uh, the family are scattering everyone's running uh, from this venomous snake uh, knowing its threat except for one member of the family who runs toward it and frantically stamping at the snake Uh, and after a flurry of of stamping uh, the snake is motionless uh, dead, its head crushed Uh, But as the family regathers, it's clear that the heel uh, of this saviour has been bitten. The venom is doing its work and he will die. That's the picture that we have here. The serpent crushed, but at the cost of a death. Somebody takes the flaming sword so that the tree of life can be accessed again. Uh, And the the New Testament seems to pick up this imagery in a number of places, but perhaps the most obvious in Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Though the point is not that you and I must try really hard to to crush evil out of our lives, no, but that you and I must rely upon the one who has crushed evil finally and decisively uh, on the cross. So before we come to a little time of questions uh, in a moment, how are you doing with your view of the world? Uh, If you're not a Christian, then how does your way of understanding the way the world works make sense of what you see? Christian understanding would say that the beauty that we see, the fantastic things that we see, are explained by Genesis 1 and 2. God made this world. He made it to be good. He made people in his own image. That's why people are so fantastic. But Genesis 3 explains the horrors. That there is a dislocation. That things are out of sync. The cog has come out of place. And nothing works as well as it should and could. Everything has been undone by that essential dislocation at the heart of the universe. And the basis for hope? The basis for hope is not, is not human progress. It's not a gradual improvement of the world based on our most excellent advances. Just, just take a look at the last couple of centuries and, and ask, does it look as though we're advancing? seems as though we're getting even more clever at, at the ways in which we can be brutal to one another. No, the basis for hope is in something that has been done for us. In an outside invasion of God come in human form to redeem us. So, which sort of personality are you and how might you be affected? Well, maybe you do tend to optimism. Maybe that's your your instinct. Well, can I say, be wary of gullibility. If you're a natural optimist, be aware of the peril of evil in the world. It well, would be wise, wouldn't it? But maybe you're a pessimist, gloomy and glum. Well, then don't be so negative. See the good in our world. See the great things that God has made for us to enjoy. The good that can come in relationships. Do you tend to anxiety? You're a worrier. Well, stop imagining it's all down to you. Resist your fear by giving up your attempts to control the world and instead trust in what somebody else has done for you? Or do you tend to be angry? Do you complain? Well, you will be angry, and you will be frustrated if you are trying to control a world that is not yours to control. See, the world doesn't bend to your will or mine. It wasn't designed to. So, so repent of the presumption that the world should organise itself around you uh, and get God back in His proper place. Uh, we will get to questions uh, in a moment. Um, I'm, I'm going to finish in a slightly odd way. Um, the, the title of this sermon on the term card was "Paradise Lost." Um, Paradise Lost. Um, uh, I don't know if it's the first time it was used, but it um, it comes from a very long poem. Um, by, um, uh, by Milton um, so long that it's divided into 12 books um, and it's in ancient English um, but somebody took the trouble in, um, in preparation for, for tonight's sermon um, uh, they, they took it upon themselves to read Paradise Lost for me uh, and offered me all of these quotes um, that they thought would be really excellent um, I'm, inf- I'm going to give you one Uh, which is sort of in the poem, it's the words of Christ is speaking. Um, And it is anticipating uh, his coming. Happy for man, so coming. He, her aid, can never seek once dead in sins and lost. Atonement for himself or offering meat, indebted and undone hath none to bring. Behold me, then, me for him, life for life I offer. On me let thine anger fall. Account me, man. I for his sake will leave thy bosom and this glory next to thee freely put off and for him lastly die well pleased. On me let death wreak all his rage. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we are very grateful that there is one upon whom death has wrought all uh, his awful rage. Uh, Thank you that there is one who has taken uh, the flaming sword flashing to and fro. Thank you that there is therefore a way back to the tree of life. Uh, We deserve none of it. Uh, We know in ourselves uh, these seeds, indeed the fruit of our resistance, our rebellion against you. Uh, Thank you, therefore, uh, that you have made possible uh, a way uh, to live. And you've also given us a way to understand ourselves and our world Uh, Pray that we would absorb more of uh, all that you have revealed uh, to understand ourselves and live well uh, in the world that you have placed us. In Jesus' name, amen.